uh, everyone who is able, please stand to hear the word of the Lord from Psalm 126. When the Lord restored the fortunes of Zion, we were like those who dream. Then our mouth was filled with laughter and our tongue with shouts of joy. And they said among the nations, the Lord has done great things for them. The Lord has done great things for us. We are glad. Restore our fortunes, O Lord, like streams in the Negev. Those who sow in tears shall reap with shouts of joy. He who goes out weeping, bearing the seed for sowing, shall come home with shouts of joy, bringing his sheaves with him. The word of the Lord. Thanks be to God. Let's pray together. Our Father, we thank you that you are a God who speaks to us, that you are a God who reveals yourself to us, that we might know you, that you are a God who has recorded your great acts of salvation and work in the scriptures, that we might have hope and perspective and the ability to see our lives from a different uh, vantage point. And so I pray even now that as we consider this psalm, that you would help us to do these very things, and that you would meet each of us in the place that we came in this morning, and that you would orient us toward Jesus and to the hope that we can have in Him. We pray this uh, in and through Christ. Amen. So, a few weeks ago, uh, we looked at John 16 and the hope that we can have in Jesus. If you remember, at the end of John 16, Jesus says, in this world you will have tribulation, but take heart, I have overcome the world. In this world you will have difficulty and trouble and sorrows, and yet we saw in John 16 how, how Jesus showed us that we can have an unshakable hope in Him, a hope that is founded upon His victory, His death, and His resurrection, a hope that even right now we can taste the victory that He has won for us. And so that passage emphasized uh, the inbreaking of God's kingdom and the new creation into this present world such that Jesus compared it to like a pregnant woman who is giving birth and experiences pain. That's what his death is going to be like, but it's going to bring forth new life into the world. And so some of the things that we thought about in that passage was that we can experience the joy of the age to come right now. We can experience answered prayer. We, we can know God. There are these wonderful realities that the Bible speaks of that are so much more even than just those three things I mentioned that we can experience right now. And yet, there's also the not yet, what's not experienced, the real struggles, the real hardships of the life of faith and following Jesus. And that's why today I wanted us to consider that side of things and to look at this psalm. We began our service with 2 Corinthians chapter 4, and in that chapter, in that letter, Paul speaks of this other part of the life of Jesus, of following Jesus, where he says, we are afflicted in every way, we are crushed, we are perplexed, 
always carrying around in the body the death of Jesus. The reality of the life of faith and hoping in Jesus is both of these things. It's John 16, it's the already, but it's also Psalm 126, the not yet. Psalm 126 would lead us and call us to sow our lives in hope when we're not experiencing God's blessing and God's joy, when life is hard. If you don't have the text in front of you, uh, I invite you to pull it out. Uh, It's in the bulletin. We're going to look at it together, and I want us to think about three things this morning. First, the challenge of sowing, the perspective needed to sow, and then the promise to those who sow in hope. So challenge, perspective, and promise. First, uh, the challenge. So if you look at the psalm, Psalm 126 has a fairly simple structure. The first part, verses 1 through 3, the writer describes the work of God in the past and how he has restored the people and there's been great joy and praise that this has brought about. But then in the second half, verses 4 through 6, he describes the current state of the people who are not experiencing God's blessing and joy. They are they're weeping and the conditions are not fruitful and glorious. They are dry and seemingly lifeless. And here's the image to think about. Verse 4, where he prays, Restore our fortunes, O Lord, like streams in the Negev. So the Negev is this part in southern Israel, and it's a place during parts of the year that is extremely dry and arid and desert-like conditions. But in certain seasons, heavy rainfall occurs and torrents of water flow through this area and give life to beautiful and lush vegetation. And here's the challenge of this psalm. The challenge is, what do you do when you're in a season of sorrow? When the context of where you do life and relationships and work and all the things that you do, when it's like a lifeless desert. I want you to think about the second half of this psalm, and I want you to like insert yourself and your life into what this psalm is describing. You only have so much grain. You only have so much food. And in an agrarian society, grain, seed, is, isn't just food, but it's, it's your livelihood, right? When you have an abundance of grain, what were some of the things they do? They build a storehouse to keep the extra grain, kind of like a bank almost. So it's part of your whole economic well-being and your society's well-being. And the image is of a person of faith and hope going out into the desert, into the seemingly lifeless the hard-caked ground of the Negev and taking their greatest resource for life and survival and sowing it on the ground. Taking what could be food for you and your family to eat, taking your resources and casting them on the desert ground in hope that God will send rain when you have no idea. But God will send streams in the Negev that will take those seeds sown and will make them into a beautiful and lush, fruitful harvest. A few weeks ago, I was reminded of a movie that I had seen many years ago. 
a movie called Calvary. Came out in 2014, starring uh, Brendan Gleeson. It's a movie about a Catholic priest in a small town near the Irish coast. And the movie opens with a rather shocking scene where the priest, Father James, is sitting in a confessional booth. And the camera angle only shows the priest. The man on the other side, whose face you don't see, isn't there to confess, but he's there to tell part of his horrific story of how the church has failed him and done great damage to his life. And then he says to the priest, Father, I'm going to kill you in a week. I'm going to kill you not because you are a bad priest, but because you are a good priest. And if that isn't disturbing enough, as, as the movie you know, goes on, what you see is incredible brokenness and sadness and unfaithfulness and dysfunction just everywhere in this small Irish town. And you see a cynicism that has affected everyone. It is a place void of love. It, it, it is a wasteland. It is a dry, desert, hopeless place. And you witness the life of this priest, Father James, who works among people that could care less about him and his ministry. He's not loved. He's not respected. He's not welcomed. At times, he is hated. He is mocked. He is the butt of, like, everybody's jokes. He's viewed as just irrelevant and out of touch. And you see this man who is working in these desert-like conditions, spiritually dead and dry, and what does he do? How does he spend his days? He gets up in the morning. He goes and he meets with his parishioners. He seeks to love them. He seeks to care for them, even as they're rejecting him. He gets up each day and he goes throughout the church and he puts out the hymnals and the Bibles. He prays. This psalm calls us to do something incredibly difficult, to sow your life in hope, to give yourself, your life, all that you are to God, to following Jesus, to living for Him and His kingdom, to sow your life in hope even in seasons where it seems hopeless and nothing in your experience says anything is working. That's the challenge. And I think this challenge of, of this aspect of the life of faith is one reason why some people don't believe or even give up on faith in Jesus. I, I feel like I've heard many people say over the years, whether it's been an in-person conversation or you know, you're reading a book or reading somebody in an article, saying something like this, I tried Christianity, but it didn't work for me. And I am sure there are all sorts of different stories and heartaches attached to that response. And if you've ever said that or if you've ever thought that, my intent is not to slam you in any way. But that statement reveals something. It assumes that Christianity is true to the extent that it works meaning to the extent that it's pragmatic, that it's, that it's helpful. But this is not what we see in this passage at all because sometimes it doesn't work. And there's no indication that it's working. And maybe part of the hope of a passage like this is to say, 
and that doesn't mean to give up. Ultimately, Christianity is true or false on the basis of whether Jesus really was the Son of God who came into this world, who died on a cross, and who rose again. And that can be 100% true. That can be a historical fact. And yet, you can go through huge parts of life where that doesn't feel meaningful. It doesn't feel real. It doesn't feel fruitful. It doesn't seem to lead you to be fruitful and to flourish. Which is why... If we're going to actually do what this psalm calls us to do, we need this second thing, which is we need perspective. We need perspective to sow our lives. Think about this psalm, right? The reason why the psalmist can pray in verse 4, restore our fortunes, Lord, like streams in the Negev. The reason why he can say that, that those who sow in tears shall reap is because he views his life, he views his own story through what God has done. Through what God has done in the past, God's faithfulness in the past, the great things God has done in the past is relevant to how he thinks about his own life. So that phrase, uh, restore the fortunes, you see it in verse 1 and you see a similar phrase in verse 4. It describes a situation, basically, something was good, and then it went very, very bad, and then God restored it. And in the Old Testament, we can think of two examples of this, an individual example and a communal example. The individual example is the story of Job. If, if you're familiar with the story of Job, right, it begins well. Like, Job's life was going really great, And then it went terrible, and he lost everything. He lost his family, he lost his wealth, his friends turned on him, he was alone. And yet at the end of the book, in Job 42 verse 10, it says, the Lord restored the fortunes of Job. Communal example, Israel's own story of exile, right? That's probably what the psalm is referring to in verses 1 through 3, because the most consistent use of the phrase restore the fortunes in the Old Testament is in reference to Israel being restored from exile. So again, remember, Israel, they came into the land and they experienced blessing from the Lord, but they sinned again and again and again, and they kept turning from God, and that results in them being conquered and going into exile and losing their homes and losing family members and everything seemed lost, and then God restored the fortunes of Zion. And this the psalmist writes, when the Lord restored the fortunes of Zion, we were like those who dream. It's, you know, we were pinching ourselves, is this really happening? Like, is is God really doing this? Verse 2, we laughed We shouted for joy. We had so much joy. Even the nations, the nations recognized that God had done something here. And so we said, yes, the Lord has done great things for us. All that was true. God did this great work. He did this fantastic thing. But now they're in this place where that has faded away. And the joy is gone. And there are tears And we don't know what the context of, you know, this psalm is, like when exactly it was written, 
But what we know is it probably is in reference to, right, the exile that had been ended and the return and this glorious great thing. And yet we know there was a hundreds of years of struggle. I mean, we read the book of Daniel a few years ago. We've done Isaiah. You know the people went through incredibly difficult seasons of life where it seemed like, where did all of that go? The basis for the prayer, this longing for renewal, is that God has acted in the past, and that is relevant right now. That perspective is relevant. But I think that whole idea is incredibly hard and difficult for us. We've said many times over the last few years that that we're in this age, this period of time of what various philosophers and writers have called a secular age. And one of the features that we've talked about many times of a secular age is that what feels important and what feels like it matters and what feels like it's relevant and what feels like it's meaningful is right here, right now. Our lives are framed, they're bracketed in such a way that what feels like it really matters and the things we really need to have to make life work are the things right here and right now. And the things that don't really feel like they matter so much or they're important or meaningful is God and God's work in the past and eternity. There's a sense in which just collectively the world in which we live, that those things don't register as meaningful. And yet this perspective of God's past actions, of His present faithfulness, even when we don't feel it, of the assurance that He's going to do all that He has promised, this is what we have to have in forming our lives and our stories if we're going to sow in hope. It's almost like the New Testament book of James had Psalm 126 in mind, when James writes this in chapter 5, listen to these words. Be patient then, brothers and sisters, until the Lord's coming. See how the farmer waits for the land to yield its valuable crop, patiently waiting for the autumn and spring rains. You too, be patient and stand firm, because the Lord's coming is near. Brothers and sisters, as an example of patience in the face of suffering, take the prophets who spoke in the name of the Lord. As you know, we count as blessed those who have persevered. You have heard about the perseverance of Job and have seen what the Lord finally brought about. The Lord is full of compassion and mercy. How can you be like Job and patiently wait on God and trust God, and hope in God, even when everything in your experience says this isn't working? How can you, like the prophets, build your life and continue to build your life around what God has said, serving God and, and, and sowing your life in hope, when the fruit of this is something you might never see in your life? You have to have this perspective that the Bible gives us. And that's why This thing that we're doing like right now, not just me preaching, but like us being here together on Sunday is so important. If you're a person who's entrusted yourself to Jesus, or if you're a person who is really honestly trying to wrestle with what the Bible says and trying to understand what it would mean to trust and hope in Jesus, 
we need this gathering each week. I need this gathering each week. We, we need to come into this place where we are reminded as we are called by God in the call to worship that we are reminded this is the God who invites us to himself. We need to sing of the great things that God has done. We need to confess what the, what the church has historically confessed, and we need to hear one another's voices as we remember that our God is the one who created all things, who sent Jesus into this world to live and to die for our salvation, who sends the Spirit to bring renewal, who's at work in this world and in the church, who will accomplish all that He has promised. We need to be here for ourselves. We need to be here for each other. We need to connect with each other, with discipleship groups and community groups and maybe dinner sixes or, you know, whatever. But, but we need our lives connected because I honestly don't, you know, like where else are we going to be reminded of this perspective? We need this perspective to deeply penetrate our lives. Even if our lives right now are just awesome, we really need the perspective to penetrate because what's going to happen when our lives are not awesome? We need this perspective so that we can pray, Lord, you restored your people. You were faithful. Do it again. Bring renewal again. I'm going to sow. I'm going to give myself to you, fully to you. I'm going to sow my life toward your kingdom. Bring the rains. Bring the harvest. Finally, let's think about the the promise, the promise to those who sow. You see it in verse 5 and 6. Those who sow in tears shall reap with shouts of joy. He who goes out weeping, bearing the seed for sowing, shall come home with shouts of joy, bringing his sheaves with him. The writer of this prayer would urge all of us, saying, yes, sometimes it feels in vain. It is painful, and it is hard to sow your life in what might seem fruitless. It might appear in vain to give yourself to God's purposes in this world, to spend yourself to love other people, to love difficult people in your family, difficult people in your job, difficult people in the church. The writer would say to us, I get that it feels like a risk. I get that it feels vulnerable to take your greatest resources and sow them. But those who sow will reap. Paul writes similarly, Galatians chapter 6, verse 9, where he's urging his readers to sow to the Spirit and to the things of the kingdom of Jesus and the work of God in this world. And he says this, we must not get tired of doing good, for we will reap at the proper time if we do not give up. I really want to tell you every detail and frame by frame of how the movie Calvary ends. I will hold myself back. You can watch it if you're so uh, inclined. But I will say this, uh, that at the end of this movie, there are these two glimmers of hope. 
There's this man who earlier in the movie, he is the richest man in the area. He has so much money that he could just burn it. And he's arrogant and he loves to just show off. And there's this point where he comes to Father James in humility and brokenness because he realizes he has destroyed his life. And this is the only man who has really loved him. And then there is this other man, the man who had been so deeply hurt by the church and had threatened Father James, where he, you can see, is being brought out of cynicism and anger, and you sense that there might actually be hope for him as well. And the reason was is because this priest sowed his life. He gave his life to what seemed pointless and just vain and loveless people. He sowed his life to the place where God had put him. And God calls us to this same thing, but the God who calls us to sow our lives in hope is the God who in Jesus Christ has done this very thing for us. Jesus says about himself, not long before he goes to the cross, in John 12, 24, he says, Truly, truly, I say to you, unless a grain of wheat falls into the earth and dies, it remains alone. But if it dies, it bears much fruit. Jesus sowed his life. He came into this world of a spiritual wasteland and darkness, a world that was hostile to him and did not love him and did not want him, and he gave his life as he taught, as he lived, as he ministered, as he loved to the very end. He sowed his life in death that through the resurrection, we who are connected to him by faith could be forgiven, could be restored, could be renewed, and part of the new creation in Him. My question that I want to leave you with this morning, especially if you are a person of faith who in a few minutes is going to come to this table and take the sacrament of the Lord's Supper foretasting what is to come, the feast in God's kingdom, my question for you is, do you think when Jesus returns when the flood of God's kingdom comes into this world in all of its fullness, bringing the new creation, when the torrent stream of God's grace brings renewal and resurrection life and profound beauty that you cannot even imagine, do you think on that day there will be one thing that you gave, one thing that you sowed, that you would want to take back? Do you think that there will be any sacrifice given to the work of God and His kingdom that on that day you will regret? Everything will have been worth it. Every pain, every sacrifice, everything. Those who sow with tears shall reap with shouts of joy. Let's turn to a time of prayer. Each week when we hear God's word, God gives us a perspective on our lives that perhaps this past week there have been countless moments for myself as well as you where that perspective has not been operational. And this is an opportunity for us 
to reorient ourselves, to honestly speak to God about the ways that we have turned from Him, we have not loved Him, trusted Him, hoped in Him, to confess our sins that He might restore us and renew us and assure us of His love and grace toward us in and through Christ. And so let me invite you to spend a few moments in private confession, and then in a moment I'll lead us in prayer.